grab one right in the pews right in front of you, those black Bibles there. And you'll find it on the leftist most side of your Bible, almost. And so you get to Genesis and you flip a couple pages over, you'll get to Exodus. And our scripture reading is Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. So if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom, and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. I don't know if you've ever heard a family story that impacted you and the way you viewed your life as a whole. Uh, It could be a story about your mother and your father and how they met and how they got married. And you you start thinking how that shaped you. It could be a story about how your family came as immigrants into the United States. Well, two weeks ago, my uncle passed away. And at his wake, my cousin started telling me stories about my family. I learned that my grandfather was from China, from the province of Hunan, and particularly from the city called Changsha. My cousin explained there is a Changsha dialect, which I didn't know, and that my aunts and uncles understood that I didn't know they understood. She went on to explain that the Changsha people have a reputation for feistiness, enjoying spicy food, standing for justice, and fomenting peasant revolts. She even informed me that Mao Zedong spent formative years in that city cultivating his revolutionary spirit. Now, this gave me a different view of my grandfather and what it meant for him to flee to Taiwan and what it meant for him to come to the United States. And I have to admit, it gave me a different view of even myself. And so I'm very excited as a church family 
that we began a new series in the book of Exodus because Exodus is our heritage. It is our family story. Exodus was written to the second generation of Israelites in the wilderness. It is a book written to a generation who had forgotten the history of their immigrant forefathers. And Exodus was meant to give the people, these, the second generation in the wilderness, an understanding of, of their past, of their history, so that they could better understand who they are. It's kind of like, a, I don't know, those DNA tests to find out your history. This was kind of like that version. And as much as it was written for Israel, it is a story for the church. It is a story for us. It is our spiritual heritage as sons and daughters of God. More importantly, Exodus is about God. Now, you might say to me, well, okay, duh, Pastor Steve, like the whole Bible is about God, right? But I've asked a few people. I've said, what is Exodus about? And they say to me, it's about redemption, or some people will say to me, it's about freedom from oppression. One person even said to me, it's about exodus. I was like, okay. <laughs> now, certainly all those themes are there about how God redeems and saves and cares for the oppressed. But if that is all this book is about, then this book would be a lot shorter. This book would end actually in chapter 15 out of these 40 chapters, leaving us with 25 unnecessary chapters. There would be no need for chapters 16 and 18, 16 through 18, about the wilderness wanderings. It would be no need for 19 through 24 to talk about the law. There would be no need for 12 extra chapters simply discussing the tabernacle of God. No, the central theme about the book of Exodus is that we serve a God who will make himself known. That's the main idea of Exodus, that we serve a God who makes himself known. I've been reading a book with our elders at the church, a biblical theology of Exodus, and it's called The God Who Makes Himself Known. Uh, and the subtitle is The Missionary Heart of the Book of Exodus. And it is a very apt title because that is the central theme of the book. Now, why would I say that? Because Exodus itself tells us that. Let me just read you a couple of verses. We're not really looking through the text yet. But Exodus 6, 7 says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. There's a knowing of God. Exodus nine sixteen, But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Psalm 106, which recounts the history of the Exodus, says this. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Even the prophet Isaiah comments on Exodus saying, So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. God's agenda in Exodus is to publish his own glory. We have a God who will be made known in all the earth before all these supposed gods of Egypt. We have a God who will make his name known through all the earth in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. 
He will reveal himself through the faith and obedience of his people. He's going to reveal himself through his gracious provision and his own abiding presence in the tabernacle. God will be known. His character is revealed to Israel, to Egypt, and to the world. And that is what Exodus is all about. So my hope for you, church, is that as we go through Exodus, and I know some of you were like, yeah, I'm so excited about Exodus. I hope that it will be far more than just about Charlton Heston, okay? Far more than some animated uh, film like The Prince of Egypt and definitely more than whatever Christian Bale did in his Exodus movie. No, my hope is that we would ground ourselves in our spiritual heritage and know our God And make his name known. In fact, that is the theme right here in our first opening verses of Exodus. At first blush, you wouldn't think it is. Because actually, when you look at the whole chapter of chapter 1, God is not even named. He is strangely absent from this whole chapter. He doesn't even show up till the end of chapter 2. But let's take a closer look at these verses. And see what God says about himself. Now to set the stage, we are dropped right into the time of darkness for the people of God. It's been nearly 400 years uh, since the events of Genesis. 400 years since Joseph brought his brothers and their families into Egypt. And over that time, the people of Israel have grown into an unwanted immigrant community. And what makes it worse is the fact that God has actually gone radio silent on his people. He hasn't spoken to them. The last time God spoke to his people was in Genesis 46, when God spoke to Jacob in a dream. So to all of God's people, it would seem like, what is going on? Where is God? It seems he's fallen asleep at the real. He's indifferent. Now, I wonder if you've ever asked yourself that question. Where is God? What's he planning? What's he doing right now? Because it would be nice for him to show up right about now. All these opening verses provide two comforts when God seems absent. And I'll go ahead and give them to you right now, those two comforts, so that you can put them down in your notes as we go through. First, God, when God seems absent, he is faithful to his promises. When God seems absent, he is faithful to his promises. And second, when God seems absent, he is faithful in his providence. Promises and providence. So first, when God seems absent, he is faithful to his promises. Let's look at these opening verses here. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. There's Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. These introductory verses tell us a lot about what we need to know concerning Exodus. And what we see in this introduction is that Exodus is a sequel. It's a continuation. It picks up where Genesis left off. There are a number of elements indicating, hey, 
you know, this is related uh, to the book of Genesis, the book that came right before. For example, it talks about Joseph's death. And that's where we kind of left off right before in Genesis, uh, in, that, in that last verse in Genesis 50. What's more, the language of verse 1 reflects the language of Genesis 46.8. There it says, These are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob, and his sons. Now that is almost word for word in the Hebrew and almost in the English. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. In fact, what doesn't show up in your translation is that Exodus in Hebrew begins with a rather harmless word. It's the word and. Now, that's not there in translation, but you would actually read it. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. So the presence of that word and at the beginning of a book would be odd unless it was a continuation of something before. So if there's ever a teacher that tells you, you can't start a sentence with and, you can say, God started a whole book with and. Moses wrote this book by the inspiration of the Spirit, and he's taking us back. It's almost like a flashback. It's getting us caught up with, with, with Genesis and the story of Joseph and how he brought his family into Egypt during a time of famine when, when Joseph was this prime minister of sorts. It's all part of the same story. Now, why is that important? Because despite Joseph's death that we see in verse 6, despite the fact that that whole generation died and that God has been silent for nearly 400 years, look at verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, if you know your Bibles, if you know your Bibles, bells are just ringing in your head right now. Because these are words, these are terms that are echoes from Genesis. They're echoes of God's promised blessing. So turn with me to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So just get to the very beginning of your Bibles. Genesis 1, 27. It says this. So God created man in his, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. And it keeps on going and going. God's command in the garden was be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. What is that? That's Exodus 1, verse 7. Those are the same phrases. And why did God want, want humanity to fill the earth? Why, does, why is God's purpose there? Because Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, and he wanted his image to multiply and spread and go abroad that his glory would be known. You see, it functions almost like a flag, uh, I'm reading this biography on Churchill right now. And he lived in a time when the United Kingdom was at the zenith of its power. And they used to say in England that the sun would never set on the Union Jack. And the Union Jack is 
the flag of, of, of the United Kingdom, meaning that their territory was so vast across the globe that the, somewhere the sun was rising upon that flag. So whether it was in New Zealand or India or Africa or Canada. And God wants to fill the earth with his glory through his glorifying image bearers. Now listen to some of these verses from Genesis. In Genesis chapter 9, listen to these verses. God blessed Noah and his sons, saying, be fruitful. So now it's not just, not just Adam and Eve, Noah. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Next, Genesis 17. This is to Abraham. He says, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and you may multiply greatly. Then, Genesis 26. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. This is to Isaac. And one more, to Jacob. Genesis 35, 11. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations will come from you. So turn back to Exodus chapter 1. In verse 5, it says that there were 70 persons that came into Egypt. Now, can you imagine this original audience that's in the wilderness? And they're saying, 70? It's amazing. See what God has done. Because we're millions now. But that's what the Lord did. He was faithful to his promises to bless. He was faithful to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And verse 7 packs in every possible way to say that Israel was growing. The language here in Hebrew is that they were swarming. They were almost insect-like in their growth. So what was God doing when he seemed silent? He was being faithful to his promise to bless his people. Now let me pause here and simply say that the whole of Scripture testifies that having children is a blessing. I know some of you aren't married, and some of you are done having children, and some of you are, have a lot of children and wish you were done having children. But I'm not saying that families must have children or a certain number of children. I'm simply saying that in the Bible, children are always spoken of highly in the Bible and are seen as a blessing, a blessing. And these days, children are seen as a liability. I mean, they cost money. You can't live that fabulous lifestyle that you used to live. And they'll cost your body. You're, it won't look as fabulous as it used to look. There is a great cost. But from a Christian perspective, there is great hope that this image bearer would reflect the glory of God. And that is why Christians have children or they adopt children or are involved in adoption or in fostering. That is why the church comes together and raise these children to direct them to follow Jesus. Now, the main point we see in these first seven verses is that God is faithful to his promises to bless. And I don't pretend to know what is going on in everyone's lives this morning. I don't know all the disappointments you face that you might have at work or in your relationships. 
I, I don't know, all the setbacks you've had in your physical health or your mental health. But God seems silent, like he's withholding something from you. What is God doing? Well, he's still being faithful to his promises. If you are in Christ, know that all the promises of God find their yes in him. So you must look for evidence that God is still being faithful to his promises, even at this moment. Church, we need to be reminding one another of those promises. And parents, we need to be teaching our children those promises and reminding them of those promises so that when they go away to college, they can remember those promises. Joseph and a whole generation passed away, and yet God kept on keeping his promises. When God seems absent, he is faithful to his promises. Second, when God seems absent, he is faithful in his providence. When God seems absent, he is faithful in his providence. Look at verses 8 through 14. Israel now goes from blessing to oppression, right? From a privileged people to a persecuted people. Look at verse 8. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, with this new dynasty comes new government policies. And I don't think it was a matter of inadequate briefing by his team, his cabinet members to tell him, like, hey, remember this guy, Joseph? No, it wasn't that. This knowing here implies that he refused to acknowledge the tremendous benefit that Joseph had brought to their nation. Now, depending on how you calculate the timing of the Exodus, the chronology is all sorts of weird. It's, it's hard. Everyone's been, it's, you know, everyone lands at a different spot in terms of chronology, but some scholars think that Pharaoh, the Pharaoh during Joseph's time was actually a foreign Pharaoh of a different dynasty. These were the Hyksos people. And when the Egyptians overthrew their foreign rulers and established this Egyptian Pharaoh, that they were in no mood to be with foreigners. That they were in no mood to honor any foreigners who were maybe perhaps prime ministers in the past. Well, whatever the case may be, this Pharaoh didn't want Israel in their land. And so we see, he says to his people in verse 9, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape, the, escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Now, this kind of excuse by the king was merely a thin skin of reason wrapped up in a lie. Calvin appropriately describes the king's action as a classic example of using an alleged threat as an occasion for one's wickedness. Up to that moment, the Hebrews had done nothing wrong to the Egyptians. They are not even accused of even holding the best land Rather, the accusations turn on a series of hypothetical situations. Um, perhaps Pharaoh said, oh, these foreigners, they're really going to take our jobs. We're going to lose a lot of wealth. We just expelled some of them. We're going to lose some political clout now. So he spouts, what does he spout? Ethnic hate. 
and propaganda. Pharaoh turns a whole nation against the people group. He dehumanizes them and establishes state-sponsored slavery. And we'll see next week that that's not enough. He's going to establish state-sponsored abortion. Here is a man not unlike Adolf Hitler and his his concept of Lebensraum or living space, who said, oh, we need room to live. So let's conquer and abuse and enslave a whole ethnic group. Let's treat people like things rather than image bearers. Now, Pharaoh's policy wasn't mass genocide, not yet. Rather, he conscripts them to hard labor of making bricks for these great granaries like Pithom and Ramses, storehouses for military kind of implements where, you know, uh, forts where invaders might come. It says they were oppressed in verse 12, and that word has the idea of forcing someone into submission. And in some passages, it takes on the meaning of rape. Mistreated Israel, therefore, would not be able to organize. Forced and conscripted, enslaved into labor, they would have to leave their homes and not tend their gardens, and they would not be able to continue to procreate at home. The combination of poverty and hard labor and probably disease was meant to just thin out the herd. But look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Despite their bitter circumstances, what happens? God allows them to continue to thrive. They multiplied more. It's like my greatest nightmare about like stepping on a spider and 50 spiders come out more. You know, it's one of those things. And so the Egyptians made life even more bitter for Israel. You see that repeated word, ruthlessly, ruthlessly. It was so ruthless that in Leviticus, God forbade them, said, remember Exodus. Remember how you were slaves and don't treat anyone else like that. How are we to make sense of these dark days? Where is God in all of this? Well, there are no pat answers. But one thing that we can say is that when God seems silent, he was faithful in his providence. Turn back with me once again to Genesis 15. This is the last passage I'll have you turn to. Genesis 15 This is right after God is covenanting with Abraham. And what does he say? Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Here is God, covenanting with Abraham, saying, you're going to go into a land, a promised land. But not yet. And you know what's going to happen? You 
are going to be servants in a land not your own for 400 years. None of what's happening to Israel catches God off guard. He has planned it all in his sovereignty and in his providence. You see, God was working things out on his own scale, to his own way, according to his own perfect wisdom. Listen to Psalm 105. Then Israel came, it's talking about the Exodus. Then Israel came to Egypt, Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He, God, turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Everything. Everything is in the hands of the Almighty. There is mystery here. We are given all of the answers as to how or why. But we are to be comforted knowing that all of this was in God's perfect providence. That's why Genesis, in Genesis, later in Genesis 46... God could say to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. Promise and providence. You know, there's this uh, preacher, some of you might know him, a black preacher named Vadi Bakum. And he mentioned that providence is a word that we typically use when we think something good has happened to us. Like, oh, that car just missed me. I almost had an accident. Oh, and you chalk that up to the Lord's providence. But he went on to give his testimony, and he said he had the privilege of flying out to Zambia on a preaching tour through Africa. And when he first arrived, he met somebody there who looked at him and said, is this your first time to Africa? And Vadi said to him, Vadi Bakum said to him, yes, it is. And the man hugged him, took his face, and said, welcome home. Vadi Bakum said, that is providence. That several hundred years ago, my ancestors were taken from this land by force and sold into slavery. That he was given the last name Bakum by German masters. And that by the grace of God, after hundreds of years, here I am, a free man who heard the gospel and was converted and called into ministry. And these generations later, I can come back to Africa and I can preach the good news of Jesus Christ. He said, that's providence. All of it according to God's plan. Now, I know that's not an easy thing to say theologically. I mean, or I guess it's an easy thing to say theologically. It's probably an easy thing to acquiesce to or concede intellectually. Especially when things are going well. Oh, it's all in God's plan. But those of you who are in the thick of it right now, this truth that all is going according to God's plan is hard to swallow, hard to remember, hard to believe, but here it is. God has not forgotten you. Wait upon him. Wait upon him. 
And while you wait, be faithful with what you can do. You know, as Churchill said during the darkest times of World War II, he said, keep buggering on. This isn't to say that you can't cry out for deliverance. This isn't to say that you just go with the flow, but realize that this is a fallen world, that you are strangers in a land, and the privileges that you have today may be gone tomorrow. And the reality is that God's people will suffer on their way to glory. You might fret or you might lament for your children or our school systems or the state of the church or delta variants and epsilon, zeta, eta, theta variants or what is happening around the globe. But remember the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Trust that God is faithful to his promises and faithful in his providence. This was true for Israel. This was true for the church. And this was true for Jesus Christ. For Christ in the promises and providence of God stepped into our suffering. In the promises of God, he became a man and bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. In the providence of God, Jesus died upon the cross, stricken, smitten, and afflicted to pay the penalty of sin. And in God's providence, Jesus beheld the silence of God. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? so that you, beloved, would never, ever be forsaken. Underpinning everything that happens to us, there is a secret providence, always at work, always providing, always purposeful, always on the side of God's people. With such a trust, our experience will be, I think, one way or another, like our Hebrew ancestors, who the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And just as God promised Israel, I myself will go down with you into Egypt. Jesus promises us, lo, I am with you always until the end of the age. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so very thankful that your word, that you give us your word because it directs us and our hearts and our souls when they are ready to to wander along and meander along different paths. Paths of trails of hopelessness or questioning or faithlessness, despair. Even when you are silent or you seem to be silent, O oh Lord, we know you've, you're speaking through your word, through your people, and that you are with us. And Lord, we pray that all of us would put our faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Congregation, please stand. If you are willing and able, please stand for the benediction. It's a benediction that comes from the sequel to Leviticus, Numbers, number six. The Lord bless you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated for a short time of silent reflection, prayer, and preparation. And when the music plays, uh, you can please exit out those doors or in the back uh, to spend some time in the courtyard and to allow our Chinese congregation to come in.